Luke chapter 5, and we're going to be in verses 12 to 26. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their illnesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. One day Jesus was teaching, and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee, and from Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up to the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why, do you, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up. Take your mat and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. This is God's word. Evening everyone, uh, my name's Matt. Uh, Matt Fuller, if you've not met, I'm going to pray uh, and then we'll look at a bit of Luke 5 together. Our great God and Father, no matter what, state we enter church this evening we need Jesus no matter how familiar we are with him or if we're still thinking things through it's all actually very unfamiliar the claims of the Lord Jesus and who he is oh Lord we need him father when we think clearly we know that we need him and so as again we look at him at work in the lives of individuals him at work explaining his mission while here on earth, would we be thrilled? Would he meet our needs this evening, Father? And would we leave here like the paralyzed man? Would we go home on our way praising you? We ask it in his name. Amen. Now this evening we need to, um, we need to talk about sin. Uh, because Jesus does. So we do. And um, I don't think it's super popular as a, a concept or term, uh, perhaps a slightly outdated word even. Um, it's a negative word for some people. It's a religious word. It's an old word. It's a bad word, uh, some would say. All right, if you don't like it, go for something else. Guilt. That's still contemporary. I think people still like to talk about guilt. So depending upon where you stand... Uh, on the political spectrum this week, well, Boris Johnson, he's guilty of many things, uh, but uh, depending where you stand, he's guilty. He's guilty of inciting hatred and violence in this country, perhaps. Or Jeremy Corbyn, he's guilty, guilty of surrender 
perhaps, or uh, Donald Trump. He's guilty of abusing his office, maybe. Or the Democratic Party. They're guilty of a witch hunt. And every world leader, according to Greta Thunberg, if you see her, oof, according to Greta, every world leader is guilty. And they have failed us, and we will never forget, forgive them. Slightly intimidating. Did you see that, uh, that little clip of her? So guilt, guilt's something we like to throw around still. That's used all the time. You're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. You're guilty. You're guilty of not thinking like me, so you're guilty. That's quite common still. Sin may not be, but the language of guilt, moral outrage, that's still highly contemporary. So it's a slight irony in our culture, where in one hand our culture likes to say, hey, you do you and I'll do me and just chill out and everyone lives how they want to live. But if I disagree with you, I despise you and you are morally outrageous. And that's sort of how it works. We kind of want both alongside. So guilt, well, there's plenty of guilt flying around. Our culture is undoubtedly more secular than it was. But you're guilty or you should be asking for forgiveness. That language, well, I've seen it in Parliament this week. It's still quite common. So I read an article a little while ago. This, um, there was a fascinating article. David Brooks is writing in the New York Times on the strange persistence of guilt. Let me just quote you uh, a little bit of it that uh, he writes. She says, everyone still feels guilty on some issues. You and I, we may see a picture of a starving child in Sudan. And we know inwardly we're not doing enough. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, I could have given more, and I feel a little bit guilty about that. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough. Someone gives all sorts of examples. You, you may fill your car with petrol. You feel a bit guilty about the CO2 it'll produce. You take an airline flight. You feel a little bit guilty because uh, flying's bad and Greta goes by boat, and, and that, surely that's better. You, um, uh, you buy anything with plastic. You feel a bit guilty about that. And then you think, no, I'm going to use China. And then you wash up with a, with a um, detergent. You think, well, that's bad, isn't it, as well? So I feel guilty whatever I do. You just low-level feel guilty. She goes on to say, today people still have a sense of guilt. Dare I say it's sin, but no longer a sense that they live in a loving universe marked by divine mercy, grace, and forgiveness. See what he's saying? So we live with sort of, it depends upon who you are, how thick-skinned you are, but it's sort of, oh, I'm doing this wrong, doing this wrong, but there's nowhere to go for forgiveness in a secular world. And so we struggle with that. You might think, oh, he's overstating his case a little bit. But then um, a few weeks ago, this, was, uh, this headline was in the Times. Patients expect GPs to heal their souls as the church's role declines. And the article goes on to say, well, people going to their GPs now and so, well, what's your problem? What part of the body is it? Well, actually, they're concerned. So they'll say, oh, my ear, it's a bit hearingless or whatever. Um, but actually, can I talk? I'm, I've got this guilt 
anxiety, loneliness. And the GPs are making the observation, hold on a minute, that's, that's not our thing. We're the body. So the article says, people are embarrassed to talk about religious or spiritual questions in the 21st century, and so go to the GPs with them. But as one GP observed, it's not clear to me that as a group, we have the skills for this. We can deal with the body, but not with guilt. But Jesus came. That's why he came. So you may not like the language of sin, or you may think it's familiar, but the language of guilt, very common in the 21st century. We love to throw it around. They're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty. Actually, I feel a little low-level guilt. And if you never feel any guilt about anything, you may well be a very unpleasant person if you never think you do anything wrong to anyone else. Uh, And if that's you, you're most welcome. And keep listening. Jesus then, what does he come for? He's come for sinners. If you're joining us tonight, we're um, uh, this term, we're spending a good chunk of this term in, in Luke chapters 4 to 9. And um, uh, three questions really uh, get answered in Luke chapters 4 to 9. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And how do people respond to him? Uh, and you see the opposition starts to grow and grow and grow back. Who is Jesus? Why did he come? And, and how do people respond to him? Here in chapter 5, the issue is very much sin. So we had last time, chapter 5, verse 8, Peter sees who Jesus is and says to him, chapter 5, verse 8, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. We have uh, in the reading we had just now from Thomas, chapter 5, verse 20, When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. And then we'll see next time uh, a key purpose statement, really, from Jesus. Why did you come, Jesus? Chapter 5, verse 32, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I've come for sinners. Why did Jesus come? He's come for sinners, to deal with their guilt. So look, uh, these two accounts of the man with leprosy and the paralyzed man, we're going to work through it uh, like this. We can look at the exclusion of sin, the cleansing of sin, the forgiveness of sin. Okay, those three, the exclusion of sin, the cleansing of sin, the forgiveness of sin. It's all about sin. Let's work through them then. First then, the exclusion of sin. Chapter 5 and verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Now, in the first century, leprosy is a miserable disease. Well, it's still a miserable disease. But in the first century, had probably a much greater fear associated with it than, it than cancer would today. You get the diagnosis, cancer. But, you know, they can, certainly it's treatable. Uh, you can make a full recovery. Back then, leprosy, uh, in fact, really all the way until 18th century, leper colonies all over Europe for, for, for years and years as the centuries rolled by. The strange thing is, biblically, it gets used by God, disease that's in the world, it gets used by him as a visual aid for sin. You go back in the Old Testament, in particular, Leviticus chapters 13 and 14, two pretty dense chapters about leprosy as a picture of sin. 
Now, in part, these rules are they're just for health and hygiene. It's an incredibly contagious disease. It's utterly miserable. You get sores on your skin. You get corruption within your blood. It eats away at your bones. But the reason there's so much detail in the Old Testament is for the theological reason. To say this disease, leprosy, it teaches you about sin. Let me just draw out three things. Okay, it's a picture of death. It's contagious and it's lonely. Let me draw those out, leprosy. First of all, it's a picture of death. This man, if you've met him, like all lepers, you're diagnosed with leprosy, you're obliged to, I won't demonstrate, but you're obliged to rip open your clothes. And that's how you walk around, with torn garments. And you don't cut your hair, you let it grow and grow and grow. So you wander around with long hair, not cut, and all your ripped clothes. Do you know the only other reason you would do that biblically? If someone has died. Numerous times in Old or New Testament, someone dies, garments are ripped, unkempt hair as a sign of your mourning. In other words, the lepers are obliged to, told to, walk around as the living dead. Because you kind of are as a leper. No hope. You're waiting for the inevitable. You're going to go downhill and die. Oh, I don't know what that does to you psychologically to wander around as the living dead. But leprosy, it's a picture of death, biblically. Secondly, it's contagious. People were scared of lepers because how is the disease spread? You can just touch someone and that's it. Give someone an embrace, that's it. You've got it on your hands, you can spread to your skin and into your blood. That's how it works. It's a contagious disease. Miserable. Which is why lepers also, when people walk towards them, they're obliged to shout out, unclean, unclean. Don't come near me. You don't want my disease. Again, what does that do to you? You wander around as the living dead and say, I'm unclean. Don't come near me. But the point is, it's contagious. And these things that the New Testament pick up on them and say, that's what people are like naturally. We are spiritually dead. Oh, we wander around and we look fine. But in terms of our relationship with God, we're dead. And sin is contagious. It spreads. Certain patterns of behavior get normalized in groups. It was a few years ago. Uh, remember the uh, some will, some won't. But the scandal at the Winterbourne, Winterbourne Care Home, in the middle of the country, and uh, you know, old old age people's home, retirement home, and a new member of staff joined and just whoa, 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 whoa! This is appalling. How you treat all the patients? And uh, she was a whistle. Went to management, said, "Shut up, get on with it." Anyway, she blew the whistle nationally and said, "This is extraordinary. You can't do this. They, they're violent towards these." OAPs, they sort of throw them around. They beat them. If they sort of have an accident, they go crazy at them. It's not right. And so you know, the scandal, six people went to prison. Five others had suspended sentences because how they were treating these old people was so wicked. How do you get into that state? How do you get to the point as a 20-something nurse where you think it's okay to beat up an old man to kick an old woman on the ground because she's wet herself. How do you? And of course, all of them said, 
It was normal. They all did it. I mean, look, you look on and think, why would you do that? But in much, I mean, dial it way, way back. In our workplaces, in our friendships groups, there'll be some patterns of behaviour which the outsider comes in and says, that's not okay. The way you relate to one another is not okay. The way you talk about clients, the way you talk about that team, it's not okay. The way you behave after work, not okay. Sin is contagious. It's worth asking yourself the question, what, um, what, what patterns of the Bible are that the what things are that the Bible will call sin are being normalized in your life? How are you being influenced by others? And things which the Bible says, that's wrong, you think, well, it's okay. It's not too bad. Everyone does it. That'll happen in every culture. I enjoyed hearing uh, recently a uh, basketball coach at uh, Georgia Southern University in the US, and there was a problem he identified amongst his uh, high-flying basketball team. And uh, so one day, they, they come, there's a team meeting, they've got massive changing rooms, it's a US University, ka-ching, ka-ching, and um, big, big changing rooms, and so they're there, and uh, there's a table where they plan, and whiteboards, etc. talking about tactics and so on. Uh, anyway, so the whole team's assembled, the whole squad's assembled around the main table in the changing rooms, and uh, the coach arranged for some two local hicks to uh, capture and bring in, and then uh, just in the middle of the team meeting, walk in and throw onto the table two rattlesnakes, which of course all the bar- all these sort of manly six foot five more uh, characters went, ah, as you would do, you know, these two rattlesnakes, ah. And they sort of flee to the corners of the change rooms, flee out of the room, and ah, mayhem and mayhem. And eventually, the, the, the two hick characters, they say, ooh, uh, they gather up. They probably didn't do that. But they probably, they, they uh, sort of capture the snakes, took them away, and, and eventually, the whole team comes back. And the coach says to them, so fellas, why did you run? Because there were two snakes that can kill on the table. So we were scared. And we didn't want to die. Oh. Can I ask you a question, fellas? I know that sometimes cocaine lands on this table. And none of you run away. In fact, you all gather round. And why don't you run? Because that will ruin your life. It may indeed take you down a path that kills you. Why don't you run away? It's a memorable way of teaching a lesson. I had this evening no snakes for you. But sin is contagious. It is amazing what behavior can become normalized. So ask a question, how are you being influenced? What has just become habitual in your gang? That the Bible would say, no, it's just wrong. Uh, Sorry, it's a picture of death and sin. It's contagious, uh, leprosy, that's what it is. And the last little thing about it, it's lonely. Uh, Leviticus 13, if you're diagnosed as a leper by a priest, you have to go outside. 
for God's people in the Old Testament. They're encamped. At the center of the camp is uh, the tabernacle where God dwells uh, uh, figuratively. Uh, then you've got the whole camp. If you've got leprosy, you have to go outside the camp. You are excluded from God's people and excluded from God's presence. You're out. That is a very lonely place to be. And again, it's a picture of what sin does. Sin does not make you happy. It's isolating. It's lonely. You might get a quick smile. But if you know you're in a pattern of unrepentant behavior, what the Bible calls sin, it's very lonely. Sometimes sing here. Let no one called in sin remain inside the live inward shame. I think that's an excellent lyric. Let no one caught in sin remain inside the lie of inward shame. We fix our eyes upon the cross and run to him who showed great love and bled for us. That's a good lyric. Because unconfessed sin, you just sit there guilty. You know you're doing things which are not right. But it cuts you off. That is the biblical picture of leprosy. It's a visual aid of sin. We're the living dead, spiritually speaking. Sin is contagious. Immoral patterns of behavior will spread in a group. And it's lonely. That's how the leper felt. And he's a picture for you and me. Okay, that's the exclusion of sin. That's half a verse. At this pace, pace will be done by midnight. Let's go secondly then, the cleansing of sin. The cleansing of sin. Let's pick up the pace a little bit on this one. Uh, uh, chapter 5, verse 12. When Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Now, that's a very interesting statement. Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So he doesn't doubt Jesus' power. You can make me clean. But what he does doubt is Jesus' willingness. Are you willing? Do you care about me? Are lepers beneath you? How compassionate are you? And so I'm sure to the lepers' ears, verse 13 was magic. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing. I am willing, he said. sung earlier. Come sinners to Jesus. Jesus willing stands to save you. He's ready. He's willing to reach out to the bottom rungs of any society, to a leper, or to anyone, to a wealthy man in the next block, Levi the tax collector, to a righteous, moral, upstanding man, the centurion in a couple of chapters time. But his compassion will spread to anyone. He is willing. Well, whatever you've done, Jesus is ready to cleanse you, offer you forgiveness. So if you remain in the guilt of your sin, it's not because Jesus is unwilling. He stands there willing and says, I'll heal you. I'll cleanse you. I'm willing. Jesus is willing. He touches. Again, verse 13, he reached out his hand and touched the man. Jesus doesn't have to do that. Next miracle, paralyzed man. He says, get up. The bloke gets up. 
He could say to the leper, be clean, and he'd be clean. But he touches, it's very deliberate, he chooses to do so. I guess why? If you've been that leper, no one's touched you for years. Your family haven't touched you. No child has come and hugged you. No friends have embraced you. Because they don't want to get your leprosy because it's contagious. But Jesus says, I'll touch you. Must have been very lovely, very wonderful for this man. Jesus is willing, he touches, and so he cleanses. Verse 13, immediately the leprosy left him. Now that is the wrong way. So what's meant to happen, or what would normally happen, there's a leper, this thing. I touch the leper, leprosy spreads to me. What happens? Jesus touches the leper, cleansing spreads backwards. He reverses the flow. It goes the wrong way, as it were. It's not normal. See, Jesus sends the man to a priest. The priest can give you a certificate to say you're clean. Oh, you're clean now. You can come back into God's people. But the priest can't touch you, and the priest can't heal you. But here is one who can do what no one in the Old Testament or no one else in the Bible can do. He cleanses this man. Slightly old now. I wonder how many have seen The Green Mile. It was on telly a couple of weeks ago. Um, The Green Mile, Tom Hanks. It's a magic film. I mean, sort of literally a magic film. Um, it's, it's sort of three hours, and it starts quite slowly, and you think, oh, I'm not sure about this. Keep going, keep going. You persevere, you're sort of drawn into it, and by the end, I defy you not to have a moist eye. Um, are you crying? No. Um, it's that sort of film. It's uh, terrific. But if you know, so Tom Hanks, it begins Tom Hanks. He's uh, very, very old. He's in a retirement home, and uh, he's reminiscing a little bit to this other woman, uh, Elaine. They're watching a film, Top Hat. And he's reminiscing to another old dear, Elaine. And uh, they start talking about his time back in the 1930s when he'd been a prison guard uh, on death row. Walking the Green Mile means you're going to do the inevitable thing and die. So he'd been a prison guard on death row. Uh, A new prisoner had been brought in, John Coffey, who's just massive. Again, he's about seven foot tall and this exceptional wide, exceptional width to him. But he's a little simple, John Coffey. And he's accused of murdering two little girls. You find out later he didn't do it. But he's in there for being accused, and um, he's, he's very simple. That's why he's got framed for the murder. But he has magic. This extraordinary power to heal. So at one point, uh, Tom Hanks has uh, a very, very, very painful bladder infection in the film, and they show you that. Um, uh, and at one point, John Coffey grabs him. Hanks is a little surprised because uh, he gets grabbed through the bars. And John Coffey draws the sickness out of him and takes it into himself. And Tom Hanks is healed. He thinks, wow, this is extraordinary. So eventually he persuades the, uh, the warden of the prison whose wife's got cancer. And you need to let John Coffey come and visit her. And he touches the prison warden's wife and draws the cancer out of her extraordinary power to absorb sickness into himself. And I won't spoil the film. But towards the end, well, you, that's, um, that's just, you get that from the trailer. Um, towards the end, you go back to him as an old man, reminiscing about what's taken place. And uh, uh, the Tom Hanks character, he says to the other old dear Elaine, you know, John gave me a gift 
when he took my hand. A part of the power that worked through him spilled into me. I'm 138 years old, you know. Elaine sort of pauses. Says, he, he what? He infected you with life? Yeah. That's as good as word as any. He infected me with life. And Jesus here, he infects this man with life. He draws into him sin. The power, the, uh, the leprosy, it's a picture of that. And he gives to the man life. And so he says, verse 14, go. Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, go. Show yourself to the priest, offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yeah, go. Get your certificate that you're clean. And when you've got your certificate, you are literally allowed into God's people. And metaphorically, you're allowed back again into God's presence. In fact, physically, you can wander now back into the temple. You belong now. You were excluded by your sin, your leprosy. Now you're back amongst God's people and you can know the Lord again. Jesus had cleansed him. The exclusion of sin. The cleansing of sin. Jesus, um, he withdraws, verses 15 and 16. The news about him spread all the more so the crowds of people could come to hear him and be healed of all their illnesses. Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He's working out again. What is the, what is the key element that I want to show of my mission? I'm going to depend upon my father. But I guess also he withdraws and doesn't heal everyone because he wants people to get, when he does heal, it's a picture. It's a parable of the deeper spiritual work he's doing. And you get another account of that in verses 17 to the end. More briefly, uh, the forgiveness of sin. Verses 17 to 19, this is quite a scene, isn't it? One day, verse 17, one day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there that come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem and the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal those who were ill. So men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they couldn't find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. That kind of ruins your preaching moment. You're getting to your, you know, your Jesus, getting to your sort of climax, your denouement, and then, and this thing lands from the ceiling. That is a distraction. Never had that here. Perhaps one or two times been heckled. On one particular occasion, someone came and sort of persisted in dancing up and down the front. Feel free to never do that uh, here at church. It sort of is a bit annoying if you're trying to preach. This is quite a distraction, and so Jesus doesn't ignore it, but he acts. Three little surprises, then we're done. What, what does Jesus see? Well, we're told, verse 20, when Jesus saw their faith. Well, that's odd. He doesn't see the whole. He doesn't see a paralyzed man. What does he see? He sees their faith because Jesus responds to faith in him. Uh, what does he say? The surprise is, of course, verse 20. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Well, it's an obvious point. It's not the most obvious. So it's not the most. It's not a presenting issue of this bloke. He's obviously paralyzed and that's why they've dropped him down through the roof. The Pharisees, verse 21, and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right. Sin is an offense against God primarily. 
And the only one who can forgive sins is him. And Jesus says, I forgive sins because he's God. See, he sees their faith. He says, your sins are forgiven. And then he asks, verse 23, here's what he asks. It's a great question, isn't it? Verse 23, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and walk? And it's not one of those classic times. Jesus asks a question and everyone stands there and goes, oh, Pippi, he's got us. Um, Because that is a good question. It's always very easy to say words, your sins are forgiven. But which is easier? And Jesus says, well, let me solve your conundrum. Let me just heal this man and you know I can do both. Verse 24, I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. The response, verse 25, immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Well, that was quite a day. Imagine... um, you know, like to mix it up a little bit at CCM. So uh, we have an interview with um, this man. We get a hotline to him in heaven, and he's got his iPhone. So we have a little FaceTime with the power. No, no, don't look at the screen. I'm not really going to do it. Um, that would be like really dodgy. Um, but imagine you could do that, and you had an interview with this guy, and you said to him, "So that oof, what a day." I mean. Probably the greatest day of your life. I mean, how long had you been paralyzed? Oh, well, I was just about 40 years old that day. So 40 years I've been paralyzed. Well, just clearly the greatest day of your life. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would have to tell you, I lived for another 30 years. And so for 30 years, every day I'd get up and I went through the same routine. I would first of all jump in the air. And then I would run outside. And then I would dance with my wife, and then I'd get on with the day. But I did that every day. I never took it for granted. Wonderful 30 years I had as a result of meeting Jesus that day. Wow, and so that's why we're told you you went home praising him because um, the use of your legs must have been sensational. No, no, you've misunderstood. I, I went home praising him because my sins were forgiven. I had another 30 years on earth walking, dancing, running. But I would swap those 30 years for 30 seconds here in heaven. Now, the use of your legs is a great joy. To have your sins forgiven is of infinite and eternal joy. That's why I went home praising him. For you and for me, if we know that, if we know our sins are forgiven, let's go home praising the Lord and giving thanks to Jesus. Because he came for sinners like you and like me. Sin is deeply excluding, excludes us from the presence of God excludes us from others, makes us lonely. Sin is deeply excluding, but Jesus comes, he cleanses, and he forgives. And if you know that, you walk away praising him, 
and you walk away determined to walk in his way. Not walking back in the paths of leprosy. So let's leave and praise him and walk his way. Because he came for you and me. And he cleanses and he forgives and he takes our guilt away. Let's pray together. Great God and Father, we thank you and praise you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that uh, here in Luke's gospel, we wonderfully get to see him as he is. And as he speaks and addresses the crowds, the individuals, and treats them with compassion, we know what he's like. And so would we hear him this evening saying to us that he's willing to save, he's willing to forgive, he's willing to cleanse. Father, if we're here this evening with guilt, and we know it, either we've never put our faith in Jesus, or we're Christians and we know we're living in a pattern of sin, which we've got to stop, would we know that Jesus is willing and would we tonight come to him, ask him for the first time or again to cleanse us, to forgive our sins? And Father, for all of us, would we know that there is nothing that compares to that? It is of eternal and infinite worth. So would we leave here rejoicing and determined to walk his way? Amen.